Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Welcome to the New Books Network. Life is filled with decisions and choices. To marry or keep your options open. To take a job or go to graduate school. To become a parent now, later, or never. Facing choices can be a confusing and anxiety-provoking experience. Today's guest has written a book to help you with the process Welcome to the Van Leer Institute series on ideas. I'm Renee Garfinkel, your host, and I'm pleased to welcome Russ Roberts to the show today to talk about his new book, Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. Russ Roberts is president of Shalem College in Jerusalem, a research fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and host of the popular podcast, Econ Talk. Russ Roberts, Welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you, Renee. Let's begin with a little of your personal history. You're president of Liberal Arts College. Tell us about some of the important influences on your own intellectual development. I was trained as an economist. Um, I have a PhD from the University of Chicago, which is a, a place that is sort of the... I would call the high church, if I might, of a certain style of economics, a belief that economics is a very powerful perspective and lens for understanding how the world works. And I um, was a big fan of that for my normal beginning of my academic life in the United States. Um, I taught economics for 30 years. I love economics. I love teaching economics and sharing that that lens so that people can see how, how the world works. And um, partly from being the host of Econ Talk and partly from reading and partly from growing up and getting older, I got less enamored of that lens as the only way to think about the world. And I got more interested in a lot of other things. I got interested in philosophy and the life well lived and what is human flourishing and what is missing from the standard mainstream economics perspective on human behavior and human choice. And so when I was offered the chance to be president of Shalem College or to apply for that job, uh, I was extremely excited about it. It felt like a very natural uh, step for me. So I, I think those that, that's, the, that's the short version anyway. All right, let's turn to your book, Wild Problems. What are wild problems and how are they different from tame problems? So I define a tame problem as one where data or an algorithm or some kind of technology helps you decide what you want to do. If you want to drive your car from Rishalayim to Haifa, you can get a an app that weighs or Google Maps that tells you where the traffic is and what, how you might avoid it. It certainly is going to tell you where to turn. Uh, you don't have to decide which route to take generally. You might have a couple choices, but it's pretty straightforward. Uh, if you want to watch a movie on Saturday night, you're not sure which one you'll like. Uh, 
Netflix, Amazon Prime, many, many ways you can learn from other people and what you've liked and using a wonderful algorithm, get suggestions that are so much better than any random thing you might pursue. And those are tame problems. Even a sent, sending a person to the moon is a tame problem. It's a mathematical engineering challenge. It's not easy to do, but we know how to get there from here. And most of our problems in life that are serious are what I call wild problems, problems where the amount of information you have at your disposal to make what you might want to call a rational decision is extremely limited. You might have some information about it. You have some idea of what other people have felt about these choices that, that they've made when they've faced the choices that you're worrying about, but you don't know if you're going to be like them. And the most important part of it that I spend some time on the book talking about is that often these decisions change us. They change our preferences. They change what give us pleasure. So before you have children, it might look uh, difficult. It might look mainly, it's easy to see the downside of most of, of many of these decisions, having children or getting married. We know pretty much what we're giving up when we make those decisions. We don't know what we're going to gain. And we can ask our friends. Most people have trouble putting those things into words. Uh, it's good to look at poetry or literature, I think, on those questions. But in general, we're kind of at sea. And the techniques that we become used to using, apps or you know, for, on our smartphone or some ref, um, recommendation system on a website, uh, we're, we're, they're not available. And most of these decisions happen when we're young. And they don't happen very often. Uh, we don't face them every week. We don't get a lot of practice. And so what I've tried to do in my book is to give people some ways of thinking about these choices uh, that, that can help us. And some of those kind of experiences uh, are, are not momentous, like getting married or having children, but they turn out to be very important. Uh, you write about attending a five-day silent meditation retreat that turned out to be one of the most extraordinary experiences of your life. Tell us about that. So that's an example where I think going into it, you don't have any idea of what its impact is going to be on you. Before I went, I I thought two things. One, I was worried about what well, more than one, two worries, I, a few. Uh, I was worried I couldn't stay silent for five days. I thought, Oh, that's impossible. Um, the second, I'm an academic. I like to hear the sound of my own voice. Huh? What am I going to do? The second thing is I'd never meditated before. And I thought, am I going to be able to sit physically comfortably for hours and, and, and do that without practice? Am I going to be driven crazy by, by sitting there in silence? Uh, but the third thing was, if I'm going to give up five days of my life away from my family, uh, is this going to have an impact beyond the five days? You know, is this just something, is this an indulgence, an interesting experience, or is it going to change me? And I was, I was, one of the things I was hoping it would do would be to improve my uh, practice of Jewish prayer. Uh, that's really what I went into it thinking. Um, it was much bigger than that. It was turned out it was easy to be silent for five days. When I tell people about it, and they say, "Well, I just I couldn't do that." Yes, you can. Really, you can, and it's actually liberating and wonderful. Uh, the physical part was challenging at times, but most of the time was okay. Uh, but the more interesting part was how it changed me, and it was uh, 
a much more psychotherapeutic experience than I anticipated. Uh, there were some things about prayer that were powerful and relevant, but a lot of it was uh, I was forced to confront myself uh, for five days uh, with various uh, teachers talking about what uh, of things I could be thinking about to um, to work on various habits or or aspects of myself that I thought needed work. And um, it made me a very different person. And I, I did, I hope in a good way. But at the time, anticipating that, I just didn't imagine that that would be part of the experience. And so I'm very grateful for that. And part of the, the lesson from that for me is that there are many, many things in life where uh, you don't know how it's going to affect you. You say yes to something and it opens other doors that you don't anticipate. Now, there's a important lesson in time management, which is to learn how to say no. If you're a nice person, someone asks you for time, they want you to help with a project, uh, you often will say yes, and then you'll say, oh, why did I do this? I, now I can't do all these other things. So you know, often time management, people will tell you, you have to learn how to say no. But I also think you have to learn how to say yes. And many of the best things that have happened to me in my life came when I said yes, where the expected gain from that saying yes was unknown or uncertain. And I'm grateful for those times I had the courage to say yes. The meditation retreat is an example. Um, And many good things came from it for me. You had never meditated before. Uh, Why did you choose a meditation retreat instead of, let's say, a workshop on prayer or uh, something related to the psychotherapeutic changes you were seeking. What got you to that thing that, you, that was most unknown to you? So I actually wasn't seeking those psychothera- psychotherapeutic changes. They came with the bar, came with the package and I was shocked by them as I sat there and, and was forced, uh, forced to confront them. Uh, it was fast, you know, utterly fascinating I learned some things about myself and and my um, what made me who I am, good and bad, that I had just never examined, and it was really powerful. But the reason I did it, the reason I chose meditation, is that my daughter had been on a meditation retreat, and she said, "Yeah, I think you would like this. Uh, you know, maybe you would enjoy uh, like a silent Yom Kippur. That would be an, uh, an experience that might be powerful for you." And I thought, "Yeah, one." One day I could maybe, you know, a whole day that would be challenging, but maybe I could handle that if I had, you know, the prayer service around it. And 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 then I ended up signing up for the five day thing, which was insane. And I remember sitting down with my daughter um, bef- a month beforehand saying, let's meditate for five minutes. I've never done it before. I want to see what it's like. <laughs> and I did. And I think, by the way, I think people who haven't meditated think it's some... Um, exotic, esoteric uh, thing that you need to work at and get practice at. And it's easy. (laughs) It's really easy. It's not easy to do in a transformative way at first. It's not necessarily easy to do it on your own, but it's not complicated. It doesn't require, it's not like saying, um, let's do a decathlon. You know, I've never thrown a javelin. It's, it's pretty straightforward. And, uh, after I sat for five or whatever, I think it was five minutes with my with my daughter. I thought, well, maybe I could do this. Yeah, this is not so bad. You know, I was afraid I'd be fidgeting constantly, going crazy. It was interesting. I found it 
you know, feasible. So I thought, I'm going, okay, here we go. <laughs> so that's what happened. Yeah, that that's an impressive story. Um, m- most of us turn first to writing a checklist of pros and cons when we're faced with with any problem, wild or or tame, if that's appropriate choices. You tell a terrific story. I really enjoyed the story about how the consummate scientist Charles Darwin tried the pros and cons approach to to decide whether or not to get married. Tell us that story. So he was, I think, 29. Um, He already had a promising, amazingly promising career uh, to look forward to. I don't think he imagined he would be one of the top maybe five scientists of all time, but uh, he he expected to be, I think, an influential and successful scientist. And he started to ask, maybe I should get married. Most people do at his day. And um, he made a list of pros and cons. It's wonderful. We have the list. Uh, in his own handwriting from his personal journal, which is, you know, we, we still have, and you can read it online. It's amazing. And he did, as you said, what, what seems rational, the pros and the cons. And the reason I tell the story is that a whole bunch of reasons. One of them is his pros are not very pro. He doesn't have much to say on the positive side. The cons are lengthy. Uh, He's worried about that his wife-to-be will not like London. He might have to end up in the country. She might have a lot of relatives he doesn't like. Um, And he can't imagine what a shared life is with another human being because he's never experienced it. And I speculate, surely he had married friends. He could talk to them. He could observe their their marriages from as an outsider. But of course, as an outsider, he would not have access to what uh, married life is really like. And as I suggested earlier, he probably would not have friends who could talk about that in a thoughtful way. They probably wouldn't want to talk about it. It would be inappropriate even in his day. It wasn't common to share emotion at that level. As I, as, you know, maybe he could read a, you know, read a Jane Austen novel, but he did not have access to, to a lot of the things he would need to have to make a rational decision. So he makes his list. And if you look at the list as an outsider, you'd say, well, this is a no-brainer. Don't get married. It looks like there's nothing, um, you know, basically his biggest pro is, you know, the biggest positive of getting married is someone, um, it, is female chit-chat when you come home from work. Uh, I a love very that. Im- yeah. yeah it's an Im- <laughs> and then he says, <laughs> yeah. well, it's worse than that, of course. He then says, better than a dog anyway. Uh, so in, in today's times, his Twitter account would be uh, full of ugly comments in response to that. Uh, but the point is that he doesn't have access to the real virtues or pleasures of a married existence. Um, and so he presumably as a rational scientific person would say, this is a mistake. And yet he doesn't, he, in a sort of stream of consciousness passage, he imagines a dreary life alone without a partner. And he goes, marry, marry, marry. He's going to get married. He he writes it three times. Um, And it's irrational on the surface. On the surface, it looks irrational because he's made the pro-con list and it's clearly the cons dominate the pros. But something inside him presumably said, this isn't right. I'm missing something. And he took a leap. And I think within a very short period of time, 
I mentioned in the book, I've forgotten, but it's within a few months, I think even, he's engaged to his cousin <laughs> and he's married her. And they end up having a really wonderful life together. Um, and he enjoys not just the chit chat, but he enjoys she reads to him at night. And um, they have a, what seems to be quite a good marriage. There were some t- tumultuous times toward the end of their marriage when his views on evolution clashed with her religious perspective. But I think all in all, he was uh, pleased with his life with his with his wife, and he writes about it quite movingly uh, in his autobiography. So what's going on there? Uh, and then I give a bunch of other examples where seemingly rational scientists, decision-making experts, when faced with their own decisions, struggle to use the so-called rational tools. And I think what I'm trying to do there is show that that there's more to life than the day-to-day expected pleasures and pains that come from our decisions. And everybody knows that. It's a cliche almost. Uh, But I think when we make a decision, like whether to get married, have children, or so on, we look ahead and we say, am I going to like the life I'm going to have? And I look at the people around me who've made those choices I imagine what it would be like for me to come home to a wife as Charles Darwin did, um, assuming she's home in our world. Of course, she she might not be home. She might be coming home to you, the the husband. But the the in his day, he was looking ahead and saying, is this going to be fun, pleasurable or is it going to be frustrating and annoying? Is it going to cost me my future as a great scientist that I aspire to? And. I think the what I want to argue in the book is that there are a whole bunch of other aspects to our choices besides the day-to-day consequences. Uh, some of those have to do with our identity. And I suggest that Darwin perhaps felt, I want to be a father. I want to be a husband. That's something I want to experience. I mean, I like all of it. And certainly you don't when you make these choices in life. There are unexpected pain. There's unexpected uh, sacrifices that you didn't anticipate. But again, I think the pleasures are often the harder part to imagine. And so identity would be one aspect of decisions. And those identity pieces overlay the entire decision in a way that uh, the day-to-day part doesn't. So as I said, you could say, well, of course, of course, those other things matter. What I'm trying to do in the book is to remind you that it's sometimes hard to remember that. It's not that you don't know it. It's not that you can't imagine something deeper. It's that oftentimes it's hard to bring that to the forefront. So what I'm trying to do in the book is to remind uh, readers that many of the ways that we cope with these challenges and these decisions can incorporate things that might be hard to remember. And I'm there to remind you that that they're, they're out there. Um, I talk about an example of a... Uh, it's a poem by Piet Hein, who was a mathematician and scientist, where he, sort of tongue-in-cheek, but sort of not, says one way to make these decisions is to flip a coin. And when it's up in the air, before it lands, you'll know what you really want. And I, that's a very strange thing. Some people have read the book and said that I recommend flipping a coin. I don't. <laughs> that's a, just an example to help you see that what could it possibly mean for a rational person to flip a coin and while it's in the air, think, yeah, what do I really, oh, I hope it comes up heads. What does that actually tell you? You've made the pro-con list, presumably. What, something else is 
under the surface is what that, that poem is trying to teach you. And what is that? Well, it could be your identity. It could be ethical values that you hold as important that should help you inform, that should inform a decision you're going to make. And I think part of, part of the goal of the book is to help you remember that those other things matter alongside the pain and pleasure of day-to-day life. Yeah, I thought that was a, a great recommendation, the coin flipping, because yeah, it's interesting. it clears away the noise of your <laughs> rational, conscious mind and gets gives you a few seconds to say, what do I really want here? What, what am I hoping but, for? But if I were, if you came to me for counsel and you said, I'm thinking of making this big change, whatever it is, what do you think? And if I would, would, would it be helpful for me to say to you, well, why don't you think about what you really want? What's in your guts? What's in your heart? Don't, don't be rational about it. Now, a scientist presumably would never say that to someone seeking advice, right? That would seem to be irrational. Go with your gut. Go with your heart. Uh, and the question is, and this is, I think, a profound question I don't have an answer to, but what do we really mean when we ask someone to tap into that piece of themselves? I don't think we mean tap into the impulsive side, right? If I said to you, you know, if you're thinking about, oh, should I have this this piece of dessert or not? Well, what do you really want? You know, I want the dessert. <laughs> and you reach out to grab it. We would say, no, 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 no. That's your, that's the impulsive side of you. Step back. Is this really good for you? And we'd help you counsel that, counsel you through that, through that decision. When we're talking about one of these decisions, whether to marry, have children, make a big career move, uh, live in a in a crazy place like the land of Israel, where everyone speaks Hebrew and you don't yet. Um, you you would would you really say to someone well, what what's your what's your emotional reaction? And I think what we really want to help someone with in those decisions, if they ask for our help, is is there a piece of you that you have trouble accessing when you think rationally about this? And that's what I see the coin flip is is ideally helping us discover. It's not what's the emotional impulsive side of ourselves that is has a, has a preference, but rather is there something outside of our direct consciousness? And you know our brains are really extraordinary, and there are things in there. It's not our heart; <laughs> it's our brains that often are helping us uh, in ways that we're not always conscious of. Uh, I, I was talking to a neuroscientist and uh, he said, uh, you don't use your gut to make decisions. Use your gut to digest food. <laughs> but there are parts of your brain that you don't always have direct access to that can help you. And those are your sort of uh, your spidey, spidey sense. Your, uh, a piece of you that is part of you. It's not irrational. Uh, but it's not on the surface. You have to sort of tap into it. And that's the best spin, to use a bad phrase, that I can put on the coin flip, that you're not trying to get at your uh, impulsive side. You're trying to get at the the unconscious parts of yourself that are hard for you to get access to. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com nbn50 and use code nbn50 to get 50% off. That's code nbn50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Well, it, it isn't hard for most of us uh, to separate the difference between pleasure, that piece of cake, versus um, the longer-term desire to fit into your clothes. Um, I guess, we, it, but happiness is uh, something that's the Americans are very fond of, so is everyone else, but the pursuit of happiness is part of the American way. And certainly you've heard, as I have, lots of parents say, all I want for my children is for them to be happy. But you argue in the book that happiness is not the right criterion for making important decisions. Expand on that. So I'm riffing on a a quote in the in the book, I'm referring on a quote from um, John Stuart Mill and uh, the reaction of Dan, Dan Gilbert, a psychologist uh, who many people who's written a lot on happiness. So the, the John Stuart Mill quote from memory, I'm, I'm going to close. Um, Better to be a philosopher unsatisfied than a pig satisfied. <laughs> it's a pretty blunt <laughs> quote. And what he's saying, the way I, I understand the quote to to be saying is that uh, deeper, there are deeper things in life that are ultimately more meaningful than uh, our physical desires. Uh, And you could change, you could expand on our physical desires to talk about, I would say just what we would call fun, Uh, that there are things more important than fun. So better to be uh, a philosopher unsatisfied than a pig satisfied. And Dan Gilbert took that quote and he said, he disagrees. Uh, and he has a lot of interesting things to say about it. But when he tries to uh, give the punchline for his case, he says, to, to understand this, just think of your own children. Do you want your children to be like a philosopher, unsatisfied or a pig satisfied? Meaning, do you want them to be happy or tormented? Do you want them to be constantly examining the difficult questions of life, or do you want them to be contented like a, a pig in slop? And um, I thought, well, that's a strange, <laughs> strange argument. I would never want the only goal for my children to be that they were happy. That strikes me as, um, I don't know, it strikes me as less than human. Animals are satisfied, you know, they're, they eat, they feed, they procreate. Um, they're safe. That's what they care about. Understandably normal, but aren't we, don't we aspire to be something a little grander than that? I, I just struck me as a rather, um, unambitious, uh, goal for, for ourselves or for our children. Now, if our children choose to have lives that are just pleasant, you know, that's their choice. they they live, they have to live their own lives, but to suggest that that's what I would want for them and nothing more uh, that's not me. Maybe it's other people. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that is all people really want is for the children to be happy. But I'd like my children to have 
meaningful lives, not just happy lives. I'd like them to be deeply contented in a way beyond the physical and the pleasant. And maybe Dan Gilbert would say, oh, but that's in happiness. Of course, meaningfulness is part of happiness. But when you say pig satisfied to me, that means something kind of a little bit narrower. And, you know, I had a wonderful email exchange with Dan and I shared the passage in the book where I disagreed with him and I wanted to make sure I was fair to him. And he said I was. So uh, we just disagree about this. Uh, but um, yeah, happiness is a little, to me, it's overrated. And of course you could define it in different ways. Um, and I, I like to think that the American, at least the original version of it in the Declaration of Independence, the, the, uh, the pursuit of happiness is, means more than just physical comfort, but uh, reasonable people could disagree about that. And, and in your chapter, I think it's called Be Like Bill, uh, you make recommendations for the reader in uh, approaching real life decisions. And the first one you uh, recommend is optionality, trying more things, as, as you mentioned before, having more experiences. But uh, other writers, both psychological researchers and writers like um, Pete Davis, whose book Dedication uh, was very popular a few years ago among recent college graduates especially, they suggest that having too many options can also be an obstacle to decision making, that it can undermine uh, the the process uh, by by creating ambivalence. Uh, that is, you know, I may be in love with a fabulous person, but there's a, always another person out there to date. All I have to do is swipe my app, and maybe someone I haven't met yet is even more fabulous. So, how do you reconcile? those two ideas, that there's a problem with too many options, and yet having options or experiences expand your possibilities? Well, I think there's a difference between experiencing things that change you, and we've been talking about a few of those, and choosing among a bunch of different alternatives. Um, uh, one way to think about this might be um, a vacation. You could take a part of me wants to go to the same place every year because <laughs> I know it. It's familiar. I know I'm going to like it. And I'm even going to go back to the same hotel. And it's just I know where the places I want to visit. I know how to get there from there and so on. The other says try a different place. Try a different place every year. Experience something new. And life is a balance between those things, right? We, we crave the familiar. We also love the, the novel. And... I'm not sure um, the implication of, of that for one's romantic life. What I'm suggesting in that chapter is that it's powerful to experience certain things to learn about either the world or yourself. I think the meditation retreat would be an example of that. Um, I got a little bit out of my comfort zone to do that. I'm glad I did. Now, it could have turned out horribly. I could have hated it and come home a day early, you know, four days. I could have left after the first day. Um, I actually drove with a friend after I was going and I told a friend about it. He said, oh, can I go to that? I'd love to go. Let's go together. And I thought, okay. It was kind of tying myself to the mast like Ulysses. I was not going to be able, by taking that friend, 
at driving him, I, I realized I was basically committing myself to the full five days. But let's take the more up the, the optionality approach, which is you go, and if it's really hell after the first day, you can leave. And it's that that idea I think is really hard for us as human beings to say, I made a mistake, I shouldn't have gone, and I'm a quitter. We don't like that. We don't like to see ourselves that way. And part of what I'm suggesting in that chapter is it's okay sometimes to quit. It's okay to get a divorce if you married the wrong person. It would be a shame to never marry because you were afraid you'd make a mistake. And I even argue, as I think in that chapter, that the word mistake is not the right way to think about these decisions that don't turn out as we had hoped. They certainly don't um, may not turn out as we as we as we hoped. But to say they didn't turn out as we expected would be weird because we don't really have a good expectation for some of these things. And so if we only do things that we know how they're going to turn out, we're going to lead a much more limited life. So what I'm arguing for in that chapter is try to minimize regret, not by saying I won't try anything that way, I won't regret it, but rather to try to change your perspective on how you see decisions that did not turn out the way you had hoped. Those aren't mistakes. You had no idea how it was going to be. And so it's perfectly okay. And I think our culture and our own often just our, our, uh, the way we're hardwired makes it hard for us to say, yeah, I made a mistake or I, it didn't turn out the way I'd hoped. Uh, that's, that's embarrassing to a lot of people. And so I'm encouraging you to try to find ways to make those decisions where you can endure that. It's not, it's not horrible. It's okay to change your mind. It's okay to say this didn't turn out the way I wanted I'm going to change course. Of course, there are the decisions where you can't do that. You can't, it's extremely expensive to change course. But in examples where it's not hard, like leaving the, the retreat after a day, where the only challenge is your own psychological uh, distaste for seeing yourself as a quitter or explaining to your friends when you show up, oh, I thought you were on that retreat. Yeah, it didn't work out for me. Oh, you, were, you quit? Yeah, I quit. It was okay. It wasn't for me. So I, I, that's what I'm writing about in that chapter. It's uh, like people who sit through the whole performance, even though they hate it because they paid for the ticket. Exactly. Right? Or finish every book they started. When I was younger, <laughs> the idea of stopping a book without finish it was anathema to me. I, viewed it, I had a rule. And of course, that rule is a good rule in many ways, right? Start, Finish what you start. But that means you probably don't read other great books because you've compulsively decided you have to finish every one you start. And as I've gotten older, I'm really comfortable putting a book down after a while <laughs> without finishing it. And again, it's a balance. You don't want to give up on every experience and every project if it seems to be a little distasteful. You want to make sure you give it a full, a full chance. At the same time, you don't want to have a rule that says push on. You know, I, I interviewed um, Annie Duke about her book, Quit. And she tells at the beginning of that book, the story of some people climbing Mount Everest. And uh, when you're climbing Mount Everest, we're in the last stage. Uh, I think if you don't get to a certain point by a certain time, not I think, if you don't get to a certain point by a certain time, you have to turn back, no matter how close you are. Because if you don't, you will end up coming down the mountain in the dark and your risks of death are very high. And these people that she writes about, they, they looked ahead, they saw that they were not going to get to that point in time. So they decide to turn back and uh, other people in their party pushed on. The people who gave up, who quit, so-called quit, 
uh, they lived. Uh, the other people did not all live. They're the people who are written about in John Krakauer's book, Into Thin Air. And so yeah. we have a natural impulse to finish what we start. And it's a glorious impulse, but it's also could be a very destructive one and costly. Not just this is a dramatic example, but again, if you, if you make sure you finish every book you start, you will not read all the books you might want to read uh, because you'll have devoted too much time to books that weren't worth reading. So it's a balance. Finally, Russ, uh, you recommend living like an artist. How does that work? What does living like an artist mean? So since I wrote, after I wrote the book, I read a, um, a wonderful quote. I think it was attributed to Schopenhauer. I don't know if he actually said it, but he said, you should treat your art like a prince. Let it speak first. Let your art speak to you rather than you knowing and being certain of where it should go. And I argue in there that when you, and um, drawing on a, a book by Lauren Buckman called Make to Know, it's a wonderful book. Most artists, great artists, don't always have a plan of what that art's going to look like or what that poem's going to read like or what that music's going to sound like. It emerges from the creative process along the way. And I suggest that that's not a bad way to think about our lives. If we think about our lives as a work of art, as something we craft, it's not science, it's not engineering. We don't simply make a plan and then execute it the way we would if we wanted to go to the moon. It's a really bad idea to treat a trip to the moon like a work of art. You're going to the moon, you better have the equations right, you better understand the physics and uh, have the tools that execute that plan as best as, as you can. But I think that's a bad way to look at life. And I think our culture increasingly encourages that approach to life. You need a plan where, you know, you need to have a, a your, set your goals. Otherwise you'll never achieve them. Set your goals and then work backwards of where you have to get to by where, when and to make sure you get there. And that assumes that you know what your goals are. And that assumes that you know how to get there. And that assumes you're never going to change. And that assumes you're never going to have another person at your side whose goals might conflict with yours. And so to live like an artist to me means to listen to your life, meaning to be aware that much of what is exhilaratingly beautiful about the life that we are given, and we only have one, what is exhilarating about it is that there's an adventurous side to it. There's a part that surprises you. The way a great artist discovers that some plot twist that they didn't think of uh, sort of suddenly is, is inevitable because of what they've written before unknowingly. And I think that's a beautiful way to look at life. Um, and we all can live that way. We all can have an artistic side to our choices and our experiences where we let the work speak and we don't always tell it how it's going to turn out. And because of that, it could turn out better than we expected. The book is Wild Problems, A Guide to the Decisions That Define Us. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk with me today, Russ. Thank you, Renee. I really enjoyed it. And thanks to our researcher, Bela Pasikov.